Hello, welcome to episode three of Wildcats Podcast with me, Amy Van Gelder. If you're looking for a show which brings you closer to experts from around the world working to save wild tigers and their habitats, then you're in the right place. Whether you're commuting, working out, chilling out, or whatever it is you like to do while listening to podcasts, you can now become a tiger expert at the same time with us at Wildcats Conservation Line. Today, we're going to be taken figuratively, of course, into the criminal underworld of the illegal wildlife trade, raking in up to an estimated $23 billion a year. According to the UN, the international wildlife trade is one of the most lucrative transnational organized crimes. Devastating wildlife populations across the world, highly organized criminal networks ruthlessly pursue profit at any cost to meet a seemingly insatiable consumer demand. Ivory, rhino horn and tiger parts are among the most popular large animal commodities that are trafficked by criminal networks involved in the illegal trade. Today, we are left with fewer than around 4,000 tigers living in a meagre 4% of their historic range, compared with 100,000 wild tigers who roamed across Asia just over a century ago. And yet, there is no respite for this heavily persecuted species, with an estimated two tigers seized per week since the turn of the century. If no action is taken to impactfully tackle the trafficking of tiger parts and products, then they may become extinct in our lifetimes. In this episode, we are joined by Debbie Banks, the Tiger and Wildlife Crime Campaign Leader for the Environmental Investigation Agency. From undercover operations exposing the illegal tiger trade to working with governments to improve policy and commitment, Debbie has dedicated more than 20 years to protecting tigers. She has worked on projects and investigations in India, Nepal, China, Thailand, USA, Europe and Japan, and has trained numerous investigators to continue her legacy. Debbie kicked things off by giving us a bit of background into the history of the illegal wildlife trade and how it developed alongside technological advancements. Yes, well, I think if we look back at history, tigers have been traded for for a very long period of time, even just thinking about before any you know, strong laws existed at the national level before CITES came into force in in the 1970s. Tigers were traded internationally for their skins, for the the fashion industry. So there's been, you know, throughout the the 60s and and into the 70s, you know, huge numbers of tiger and other big cat skins were traded around the world. And that had followed hot on the heels of, you know, a period of time of sport hunting of tigers. So, Really, by the time we got to the 1970s and the advent of CITES, tigers had already been decimated across their range. Um, At the turn of the the century, 120 years ago, there was an estimated 100,000 tigers roaming across Asia. Um, By the time CITES came into force, um, there were estimated to be about 7,000. And that was very much a guesstimate, finger finger in the wind kind of guesstimate. But really, in terms of illegal trade, you know, we're talking about trade in in, in tigers from countries that were starting to protect their wild populations in the 70s. The big crisis emerged with the demand for tiger bones used in traditional Chinese medicine. And that escalated because in the 1950s, Chairman Mao had declared tigers an agricultural pest in China and put a bounty on their head. And thousands of tigers were killed in China for that purpose, as well as being killed for their bones to use in traditional Chinese medicine. So by the time we got to the 80s and the early 90s, China virtually had 
you know, a handful of wild tigers left. They started in the, the mid to late 80s farming tigers for their bones, but demand by that time was such that we started to see the poaching of, of tigers across South and Southeast Asia for their bones to go into the, the traditional Chinese market. I think 1993 was you know, marked a significant period when there was a massive seizure of tiger bones in New Delhi, and that sparked what was sort of widely considered a tiger crisis. And since then, tigers have continued to be targeted for their bones, used in traditional Chinese medicine to treat arthritis and rheumatism, but also for their skins as you know, luxury decorative items, a status symbol to decorate your home with a tiger skin. And I think that has those demand, if you like, um, for, for tiger skins, bones and other body parts, which just really hasn't been effectively targeted. Um, there just hasn't been sufficient investment in it. Um, and so that, that trade continues today. And we've seen in the last 12 years, tigers wiped out of Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam because of that demand, primarily within China. And tiger farming has contributed to that demand, the availability of captive bred tiger parts and products in the trade chains converging often in the same trade chain as wild tiger uh, has perpetuated the desirability of tiger parts. It's actually made them appear more acceptable because you, you can see tiger parts and products for sale uh, a lot more easily now online, particularly on social media channels like Facebook and WeChat and Zalo. And that increases the not only the acceptability and the ex the accessibility. Um, and because so much of that trade operates with impunity, no one, you know, we're not seeing uh, reports of huge numbers of wholesale or retail level traders being busted for trading online. It does sort of create the impression you can get away with it. Um, so, yeah, we are, we're seeing a lot of that trade happening via the internet, but um, not exclusively. There are still persistent physical trade hubs for tiger parts and products. You spoke briefly about the tiger farms. And so I was wondering, what is the legality around tiger farms? Because I know that they were established and kind of validated by the argument that they might reduce poaching pressures on wild tigers and were kind of justified in that way. But are they still legal now that we know that it's actually contributing to the problem? Are they still legal anywhere? When we talk about tiger farms, um, it's, it's just a, a sort of catch-all term really for any facility that keeps and or breeds tigers for uh, trade in their parts and derivatives. And Outwardly, some of these facilities that are engaged in trade and captive bred tiger parts and products, outwardly, they may come across as being, you know, these sort of places where you can go and cuddle a tiger or walk a tiger. Some may very obviously be farms in the sense that they're, they're speed breeding tigers. You know, they've got a lot of tigers in parts of the facility that are off limits to the public. People tend to think of farms as these, these facilities with thousands of tigers. And there are a couple of facilities in China that have, you know, over a thousand tigers each. But, you know, many of the facilities that are leaking tiger parts and products into the trade are often quite small facilities as well, you know, with tens of tigers, 20, 50, 100, a couple of hundred. So the, a tiger farm is, you know, in terms of what does that mean, it, it's, it's quite diverse. You even get tigers 
that have been bred in captivity, say in facilities in Thailand and Laos that find their way into backyards and basements in Vietnam where you know they're not being bred there, they're just being raised to maturity and then slaughtered for their body parts. So the term is very catch-all. In terms of legality, there are some facilities that are outright illegal. For example, the backyard and basement tigers of in, in the Nian province of Vietnam. And there have been some illegal operations busted in Thailand as well. You know, slaughterhouses for tigers have been busted. In South Africa, they are breeding tigers in captivity. But because the tigers are non-native species, there's no protection for them at all. So it's not even that they're legal or illegal. It's just completely unregulated. And they are engaged in, in breeding tigers, butchering their body parts, parts are being exported to Asia, but uh, are also being processed in, in South Africa as well. In China, it is, of course, legal to keep and breed tigers. They have over, or according to government, the latest government figures anyway, about 6,000 tigers in captivity in China. Many of them, or if not most of them, are licensed facilities, so they're allowed to keep and breed tigers. Uh, the law in China actually allows the skins of captive-bred tigers to be sold, turned into the tiger skin rugs or tiger taxidermy specimens. Um, so that is licensed under the law. There's a little bit of a gray area within China specifically as to what happens with the bone. But there are, there are companies that claim they can make tiger bone wine from the skeletons of, of dead captive tigers and have shown us paperwork and referred to a secret notification that was issued in 2005 allowing the pilot use um, or piloting the use of captive bred tiger bone for medicinal purposes. So in, uh, with regards to skins in China, it's quite clear cut that they do allow um, that trade uh, with bones. It's a bit more of a gray, gray area. In Laos, between 2002 and up till 2015, the facilities they are keeping tigers were actually you know, licensed as tiger farms. You know, there was no pretense about it. And the government was giving them permission to raise tigers and kill them for their body parts and, and export those body parts, um, technically in contravention of CITES decisions. And uh, certainly the same companies that were farming and selling tigers were also bringing in, importing into Laos for onward uh, distribution to Vietnam and China, ivory and rhino horn, clearly in contravention of CITES, which explains why Laos is subject to a sort of non-compliance review under, under CITES at the moment. As I say, that was up until 2015, those, those uh, licenses and quotas were being issued. Uh, in 2018, the Prime Minister of Laos said that you know, tiger farming needed to stop and these tiger farms needed to convert to zoos. But they are, well, they're zoos in name only. They're exactly the same places with animals being kept in, in the same conditions, which are, are definitely not, not what the zoos, not what zoos would consider to be a zoo at all. You know, if, I'm sure if anyone from ZSL were to go there, they'd be horrified. And, uh, you know, animals are clearly still being kept in conditions where the, the intention is to breed as many as possible. And we do know from seizures in Vietnam, that there are tigers coming out of the tiger farms of Laos and going into trade as dead and live animals in Vietnam. So they are zoos by name only, but they are still operating and they are still licensed to do so. And likewise, there are facilities in Thailand that are licensed as zoos or licensed to possess tigers and leaking tiger parts. 
from there in, into international trade as well. Yes, the facilities are licensed in terms of trade in the body parts um, at the moment. The only legal trade is, is within China. So I guess this kind of parallel legal market provides this kind of perfect guise to launder um, these Ill- illegally produced or sourced products. So it makes it really complicated for you to do your job and, and investigate where these products are coming from. With regard to the parts that are actually coming out, I mean, the, the prices of stuff is really high from what I've seen with skins retailing up to something like 20,000 US dollars in China and bones 1,200 per kilogram. Is there a, a moving trend where some products will be more in demand than others? And kind of what's the most popular tiger product to purchase at the moment that you're seeing? Interestingly, you know, one of the the first body parts uh, to disappear from, you know, a wild tiger or a farmed tiger when it enters trade uh, are the teeth and claws. And that is, in a way, it's not that surprising because they are, you know, low risk. You can smuggle teeth and and claws easily by post or in person, but they're quite high value, especially when they're then set in jewellery items, so in silver and gold with gemstones, etc., as as um yeah, high-end jewelry items. So we see a lot of that, a lot of teeth in particular for sale online. Uh, we still see a lot of tiger skins online. Tiger bone wine is being produced just about everywhere. Um, in Laos, in Vietnam, China, Myanmar, North Korea, you know, we see branded products available for sale online and in some of the you know the, the retail outlets in Lao, for example, actually uh, shops owned by Chinese business persons openly selling tiger bone wine. And that's marketed as a, a general health and strength, a bone strengthening tonic. I'm not sure that traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, you know, are using raw ingredients to make tri- traditional Chinese medicine. Many of them who are opposed to the use of tiger bone would actually say that these tiger bone wine products are are not so traditional. They're more, you know, mass produced sort of commercial products. You know, often tiger bone wine in China may be bought as and purchased as a sort of prestigious gift to give a boss or to win a contract or something like that. In Laos, where we've seen, for example, at this Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone in, in northern Laos, the, the tiger bone wine there is being marketed more as a virility product. So there are multiple different uses and target consumer markets for, for tiger bone wine. Tiger bone glue is more traditionally you know, a Vietnamese medicinal use. You know, We see that being uh, made and sold in, in Thailand and Vietnam, obviously, um, but even in, in South Africa, tiger bone glue is being produced. So there's that market. And then there seems to be a market for, well, this is perhaps, a, you know, a supply creating a demand or a supply looking for a market. Tiger skin offcuts, if you like, or where, where the primary body part that was desired may have been bones. Um, sometimes the animals are just butchered. And in that instance, the skins might be used to make wallets. Recently seen tiger skin slippers being offered for sale. Um, obviously, this, this is just a whole new thing, catering to a whole new 
consumer market. So we have the medicinal products and we have the luxury home decor, the tiger skin as a status symbol. You know, meat is consumed as a delicacy. Again, a bit of a, a status symbol. I've seen tiger tail bones all sort of strung together as a tail with um, as some sort of charm or amulet. We've seen tiger bone bracelets. You know, so pretty much any of the body parts being used and, and I think that's really emerged, as I say, with a lot of trade taking place online with tiger parts being relatively accessible from captive bred or farmed tigers. You know, people have been creative with using every single body part, you know, whereas if you're, you know, if you're poaching and trafficking a tiger from South Asia to, to East Asia, then, you know, you're, you're getting that wild tiger butchered and out of the jungle as quickly as possible and taking teeth, claws, skin, bone. Have you seen any examples where poachers are kind of commissioned to hunt for tigers based on demand? There have historically definitely been very sort of systematic poaching operations, um, you know, to feed into organized criminal networks that are trafficking tiger parts from, say, from South Asia in, into China. Um, there was a period of time where very organized criminal groups were, were operating between India, Nepal and China. We do see still the, you know, the you know, Vietnamese poacher is actually going into Malaysia, going into Myanmar to poach tigers, you know, for a market in Vietnam. Um, you know, I got Burmese poachers coming into Thailand, specifically targeting tigers, you know, to take it back into the trade chains that feed China. So there is there is organized poaching and trafficking of tiger parts continuing today. And I think many people argued that we could farm tigers to reduce pressure on wild tigers, um, you know, flood the market with a cheap alternative. Um, and that simply hasn't happened. I mean, with any of the, the tiger farming experiments, if you like, that have been run in China or Laos, they haven't reduce pressure on wild tigers. Uh, wild tigers still make up, you know, over 70% of the, the, the specimens in trade, um, even today, and they still are targeted. And that is in part because, uh, you know, captive bred tiger parts are not cheaper than wild tiger parts. Um, so there's a, you know, a price differential there that still puts pressure on wild tigers. Uh, and the other aspect is that for some consumers, uh, particularly those consuming bone, they have there are some consumers that prefer wild tiger bone. They see that as wild tigers are have the properties that they would like to inherit more than a farmed tiger. So there is still you know some desire that drives wild tiger poaching from, and you, absolutely the, there just is not sufficient investment in targeted demand reduction for the very diverse products and the very diverse end consumers that are paying for tiger parts. Okay, so have you seen at the moment, because obviously we've just experienced the pandemic and a lot of the products that are produced are um, made for medicinal um, purposes. Mm. Um, Have you seen any evidence of wildlife traders kind of cashing in on the COVID crisis and touting tiger products kind of as a means for maintaining health during the pandemic? We have actually seen uh, some traders, uh, Vietnamese traders operating online, uh, advocating the use of tiger bone glue as a way of you know, staying strong to, you know, avoid getting ill during the COVID pandemic. That's their marketing. 
as well on the topic of the pandemic. There's been kind of some reports that government funds might be moving away, redirected away from protected areas um, to kind of help with the economic fallout of the pandemic. Are you worried about potentially this meaning that um, some protected areas are not going to be as well looked after and that it's just going to leave tigers slightly more exposed to the risks of poaching? I think the pandemic has also impacted tigers and indeed other big cats and wildlife in the, in the sense that a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people had to return to their villages and find ways to feed themselves and their families and get money. Um, so there has been an increase in in snaring, perhaps in indiscriminate snaring that is, you know, capturing tigers, leopards, that is you know, having a, you know, a pretty devastating impact on populations. There is always the risk that as uh, economies emerge from uh, the COVID pandemic, that budgets get cut for, you know, anti-poaching patrols and, and protection for tigers and other wildlife in the wild, in the, in their, in the forests. That continues to be a, a major worry. And of course, as well, just the extraction of natural resources at an industrial scale, you know, destruction of forests for linear infrastructure or dams or mines, you know, again, as, as economies try to, to, to recover. I hope that there isn't that short-sightedness and that we globally can help ensure that, you know, the tiger's forests are preserved and secured and restored, not just in the interests of tigers, but for all of us, you know, given um, where the pandemic emerged from um, our relationship with nature and the sort of biodiversity crises that we are in, you know, the, the, the pandemic is, is symptomatic of that. So I, I do hope that in the long run, governments see and value much more their forests and their, you know, their nature and biodiversity, you know, for the sake of nature and biodiversity, but also for the sake of what it provides for, for humanity. Yeah, and you just touched on as well there that there is obviously an increased risk potentially of people um, being left unemployed from the pandemic and kind of resorting to snaring and even if it's not potentially directed at tigers. Poachers are often demonised as the main issue when it comes to um, the illegal wildlife trade. But do you see that the wildlife crime in this way converge with other forms of serious kind of organised uh, like illicit business? Well, I would say the EIA is very much looking at that kind of consumer end of the trade chain. We're not looking so much or, or working in the field at the, you know, in situ conservation level. Um, so we do see, you know, organised criminal networks operating across countries and we do see convergence in the trade chain. So, in, you know, some individuals that are involved in the transport of tigers, tiger parts and products are also transporting many other commodities. They secure and own the trade routes, if you like, and, um, you know, charge anyone to move any commodity along those routes. So there, there is convergence there. Uh, we also see convergence in tiger and other wildlife crime and with other serious crimes and in places like the, you know, the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone in Lao and many other special economic zones where, you know, they're set up in countries that maybe where enforcement and governance is quite weak. Um, and they are often casino-led operations, and that's really all about money laundering. So at the special economic zone, the company and the individuals who own most of it 
have been declared an organized crime group by the US government already. And that's that's for wildlife trafficking, drugs trafficking, people trafficking, money laundering, um, bribery. So there's there is the convergence in in certain places and at certain parts of the trade chain with other serious and organized crime. Yeah, so intelligence gathering is obviously um, a huge part of how to deal with the illegal wildlife trade. There are obviously many, many more. What do you think these limited conservation funds are best directed to, to put an end to the illegal wildlife trade? I think with regards to effective law enforcement, um, there are some benchmarks of what does that look like? You know, all too often we see you know, seizures taking place and a big news story released and officials standing in front of the camera with the with the specimens that they've confiscated and everyone's congratulating them. Really, that should be the beginning of an investigation and we should be congratulating law enforcement authorities, not when they make the seizure and the arrest, but when they you know, secure a conviction or whether when they seize assets of the individuals who are really driving this trade, you know, the, the, the real financiers, the real, the people who are profiting from it. That's where I think law enforcement can be effective uh, in disrupting those networks and, and hitting people in, in the, you know, these individuals who have accrued a lot of wealth from trade or farming of tigers. You know, we're talking about you know, quite wealthy and we- very well-connected individuals and businesses, you know, seizing their assets is probably is going to hurt the most and to do that you need the right law enforcement agencies engaged in fighting um, wildlife crime and done in many places and still those kinds of investigations are, are beyond the the training and experience of you know forest departments and forest officials we really need you know police and financial cr- crime investigators customs intelligence agencies of governments to be to be leading on that kind of investigation and I think that's you know, that would be a good place for government leadership to to make sure that that is available, you know, institutional commitment, not just the engagement of police and customs and intelligence agencies because it's being financed by an external donor, but really, you know, being invested in by by government itself in in key countries. I think that's that would be a, a good place. But I think the the other aspect is is demand reduction partly because you know the demand types um, are so diffuse and you know between different con- consumer countries whether that's you know China or Vietnam the same body part could be used and consumed for for different purposes so a lot more investment is needed in you know targeted consumer behavior change and sometimes you know that also starts with really strong laws and i think that wouldn't cost anything but if in china for example if president xi um, in this year of the tiger, were to really show some leadership and you know close the domestic market for for tigers, take a zero tolerance approach to to not just trade but to demand as well, and prohibit all use of all tiger parts and products, including from captive bred tigers, commit to a you know a tiger farm phase out plan dispose of stocks of tiger parts that are building up in the the hands of these private tiger farm businesses um, I think that would make a huge difference that would impact the consumers uh, as well as as the trade Um, so I think those are the areas we'd like to see a lot more 
political investment uh, as well as financial commitment. A big thank you to Debbie Banks from the Environmental Investigation Agency there for shining a light on the dark underworld of illegal wildlife trade for us. It's clear poaching and the demand for tiger parts is decimating the population of tigers globally, but the scale and complexity of consumption make it a very challenging problem to solve. It seems that only by tackling the entire supply chain from demand to supply will we be able to change the trajectory of the current wildlife crisis. Look out for our next episode airing next month where we'll be looking into the solutions to the illegal wildlife trade in a little more detail. And please do subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.